Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. We look at the stock market and why it goes up and down. We look at financial legislation that impacts your bottom line. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we take a deep dive into a financial planning topic to help you understand it better. And then finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, that's your opportunity to ask me a question. So if you have a question you'd like for me to answer on the air, go to www.askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and you'll see a box to click to submit your question. Then I'll be in contact with you, and I'll get a little bit more information about what you're asking, and then I'll answer your question on the air in a way that's educational so that people can get a good answer, because I'm sure if you have the question, other people do as well. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update, and this is for the week ending July 12th, 2019. Overall, it was a good week in the market. It was a little quiet. The Dow was up 1.52%. The S&P 500 is up about three quarters of a percent, and the NASDAQ is up just a little over a percent. Gold came in up at 1.18%. And oil, crude, is up 4.61%. The 10-year Treasury yield is up 11.79%, which has its yield currently at 2.124%. Now, there's still some question as to what the Federal Reserve is going to do going forward because there's been this issue of are they going to lower rates? Are they going to leave rates the same? Remember that they keep kind of pushing the stock market forward by saying, oh, no, 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 we're looking at things and we we sure may lower rates in the future. Remember that the markets really like it when the Fed lowers rates. Well, recently, the economic data has been coming in better than anticipated, which is sort of messing up this concept of lowering rates, which is one reason why the yield went up a little bit. Remember, a couple of weeks ago on the show, the yield was just barely over 2%, like 2.03 or something like that. Now it's at 2.124, which suggests that the market is losing its confidence that the Fed is actually going to do that quarter point drop at its next meeting. The stock market still really wants to believe this is true. And so it will be interesting. You know, this is kind of the story of the summer with the market is, What is the Fed going to do? How is the stock market going to react to it? The whole concept of tariffs have been a little bit out of the news recently. You know, there was that agreement with Xi Jinping at the G20, and so things seem to be slightly more stable. However, on a piece of economic news 
unrelated to the United States, the Chinese economy is struggling. There was some economic data that came out yesterday. Yesterday would be Sunday, July 14th. And, you know, they run ahead of us. So I, I think it might have been early morning data because I saw it pretty late that the Chinese economy was, the growth rate was very, very slow. They're saying that the tariffs, and they keep using the term, the ongoing concern about where the tariffs are going. I've read two or three articles recently that have indicated to me that I'm not the only one who isn't sure where tariffs are going because the uncertainty about the tariff future is how I keep reading it. So it makes me think that there's a chance that people are concerned that the tariffs will come back, that um, maybe they'll even be expanded. Really, right now, I'm not seeing any immediate news on that. We seem to have refocused as a nation on our southern border and central and south, um, Mexico and Central America, rather. So we're just going to have to wait and see what's going on. In the meantime, you know, for the dog days of summer, the market's really not bad, and we'll just have to see where we go from here. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today I have two issues that I want to talk about. The first issue was really a confirmation. And even though, now I didn't read all of Regulation BI um, myself. It was about 700 pages. Remember that that was the um, treatise that was put out by the SEC that didn't quite raise an advisor's responsibilities to the level of a fiduciary, but raised it above um, the suitability standard that it used to have. And in this regulation best interest, the SEC introduced a new term called um, best interest. And I think if you were listening to an earlier radio show, in fact, I'm sure you heard me talk about the fact that in this 700-page document, and I got to about page 350, when I had found in writing everything I was looking to find, because, you know, you hear articles about something. If you haven't read it yourself, you don't have as much confidence. Well, one of the things that I found really, really mind-blowing about that was that in establishing a new standard of care, best interest, they didn't define the term. And just this last week, the SEC um, Commission Chairman Jay Clayton caught some fire for not defining the term best interest. And he really kind of pushed back hard against this and said that the rule isn't deficient because it doesn't define best interest. Um, said that, you know, they a lot of people gave him different advice as to whether or not they should define the term. And it says, um, under Reg BI, Clayton said, whether, this is a quote, whether a broker-dealer has acted in the retail customer's best interest will turn on an objective assessment of the facts and circumstances of how the specific components of the rule are satisfied. As I said, it's a common and effective approach to addressing issues under the law. 
So basically, he's saying that it'll be really obvious the way a financial advisor is operating, whether or not they're acting in the best interest. He said that best interest, when working with a retail customer, is similar to an investment advisor's fiduciary duty, which has worked well for advisor retail clients in our markets. There is no definition of best interest under the Act. Now, consumer groups are just, their heads are exploding. Those of us who really want the financial services industry to just be fair to consumers don't know what to do with a rule where we're going to create a new standard of care, we're going to call it best interest, but we're not going to define it. We think it'll work itself out. Um, And all sorts of different groups are just very, very upset with this. You know, there's two things wrong with it. Number one is if you're going to create a new term as your standard of care, you really do need to say what that standard of care is. And then number two, by the word that they chose, or the words that they chose best interest, it comes so very close to how those of us who are fiduciaries under the law have explained what we do to clients. It's been my common phrase of choice when I talk to people. I say, you know, when I'm acting as your fiduciary, I am acting in your best interest. I'm not acting in my best interest. I'm acting in your best interest. But remember, the problem with this is it's not a fiduciary level of care. And in other parts of that first half of the document that I read and then in other articles that I've read about it, They're very, very clear. It is not a fiduciary standard. So now we have a term that they're not defining, and I've still lost my ability to explain to clients what I do or how my fiduciary standard is higher than the best interest standard. And that's been an article, um, several articles have been written about that, where there were some, um, some squabbling that, well, was this as high as fiduciary? And several of the um, regulatory and industry groups, not like professional organizations, but more of standard bearers are saying that, no, no, it's not the same. It's not as good as a fiduciary duty. So we have two standards, one's higher than the other, and they define exactly the same way. So I, I think that's interesting. I'm glad actually to see an entire article dedicated to it because sometimes I wonder if maybe I'm crazy and maybe it really was there and I just wasn't understanding. But no, he's very clear that um, we're not going to define this and we think that's just fine. So that's the first story. The second story is one of those situations where, you know, all over the news this last week was the case of Jeffrey Epstein and the case of Alexander Acosta, the labor secretary under President Trump, and, you know, potentially the sweetheart deal that he cut in Florida for Jeffrey Epstein. And ultimately, it led to Alexander Acosta retiring or retiring or quitting or or going on to other things this week. So he is no longer the labor secretary. And now this has been like the 
pop, the pop culture newsfeed for the entire week. And generally, what I'm talking about isn't quite as interesting as some of those big, huge stories that are going out. However, this is where two things intersect in a way that I hadn't even thought of until I um, read an article. And I'll go ahead and include the link to this article it's um, in an advisor's website, and I'm including the link because it was someone else who originally like put these things together. And so I think it's really important to always give credit to people. So, you know, the SEC has come out with whatever it is. They've come out with this best interest, not a fiduciary, but we're not going to tell you what it is rule. And the sense was that the Department of Labor was going to be putting forward a standard of care for financial services professionals later this year that was probably going to dovetail into the SEC's rule. And Alexandra Acosta was spearheading that because Department of Labor is headed by, in newsflash, the Labor Secretary. It's just that in my mind, I didn't put that whole story together when I was listening to the news of the week. So right now, there is a big question as to what is going to happen on the Department of Labor standard side. They were going to work to try to create something sort of similar to the SEC. Remember, it was the Department of Labor under the Obama administration that put out the mandatory fiduciary standard for advisors. And then that immediately began to be dismantled as soon as the Trump administration took over until finally the thing just died a vicious death a while back. But they were going to try to put something out there. Well, now, because um, um, Alexandra Acosta is gone and there is an acting labor secretary, his name is Patrick Pizzilla. He was the deputy um, labor secretary. Now he is the acting secretary. And they're saying that because it's now a new person and Acosta is gone, that there's probably going to be a real pulling back of the Department of Labor on doing anything that's controversial. And this article um, that, um, I, like I said, I'm going to, comes out of Think Advisor, the magazine, and I'm going to include the link um, both in where radio stations want to download it can, as well as that I'm going to put it on the Ask Peggy Facebook page. So if you want to see the link to it, you can. They're saying that probably, likely, there isn't going to be any movement on the fiduciary front from the Department of Labor this year. There was an anticipation that something would be out as of December, and now it's looking that that time horizon is likely not going to happen. And additionally, if the new acting labor secretary is not pro-regulation, the entire thing could be pushed off and actually nothing could come out at all. Now, you might think that I would be disappointed about that. However, I think that anything that would have come out of the current Department of Labor was likely to be as confusing as what the SEC just put out. So really, if they just want to table this whole thing for a year and a half and let the next administration deal with it, I'm pretty good with that. I think that it's much more likely 
that um, assuming that there is a new administration a year and a half. Now, if there isn't, then, you know, probably they just won't put out anything at all. Although I'm very loath to predict what is going to happen in the Trump administration two years out, because um, typically things change and morph a lot more quickly than that. But for right now, if this doesn't happen by the end of the year, I actually think it might be a good thing because if there was a different administration, I think the Department of Labor standard for advisor care might be higher. And so we're just going to watch this, see what happens. But right now, the DOL parallel action to the SEC looks much less likely. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and today we're talking about saving money for special events. I'm old enough that I remember when banks offered Christmas accounts. A Christmas account was a savings account where every month you would put money into it. And then about November 15th or so, you'd go into your Christmas account and you'd take the money out. And then that would be the money that you would have to spend for your Christmas presents. And it was a very, very useful feature that the banks offered because they allowed the balances overall to be quite low, you know, sometimes lower than the typical bank account would be. And it was designed knowing that you were going to take all the money out in November and then start funding it again in January. And that way you went into the holiday season with the cash saved up, and then you spent what you had, and when you were out of money, you quit buying presents. I would like to propose in this segment that we need to go back to something like a Christmas account. And I understand that um, the likelihood that banks are going to offer that again probably isn't very high, although I think you could make a great gimmick out of it and call it a holiday account. And I think it would work really well if any banks are listening. However, even if they're not, you can do this without a bank. So remember that you should have a savings account for your emergency fund somewhere. You know, we've talked about emergency funds and we talk about how we build them up over time. You know, so I'm not saying that in this account you necessarily have six months of bills in it, but you should have some money in savings and the goal should be adding to it. So if your bank doesn't offer a Christmas account, I want you to use your existing savings account as the equivalent of the same thing. So that every month starting in January, you start putting money in it. How do you decide how much money that is? Well, look at what you spent last year. You know, it's really easy to say, well, this year I'm just going to spend, you know, X number of dollars a person. And, you know, that's great. And honestly, if we all budgeted like we should from a very objective financial planning perspective, that's absolutely how we should do it. However, 
I am not ever a fan of financial planning that I don't think has both feet rooted in reality. So rather than just randomly deciding what you're going to spend for for any sort of holiday gift giving, and you could do the same thing with birthdays and anniversaries. So it's really just a gift fund. See what you've been spending. And then if you're going to lower that amount, then do it very judiciously and prudently because what I don't want you to do is save all year and then go out on your holiday shopping spree and spend all the money you've saved and then say, oh, but I still want to get this, this, and this and put it on the credit card. And now you're right back to where you started. The whole point of doing this is to not dread your credit card bill in January. People dread it and sometimes they end up not having enough money to pay it off. And sometimes here we are a couple of weeks after the 4th of July and you're still paying off last year's holiday spending. So if it took you a while or if you're just barely paid off from last holiday, then I don't want you to wait and start this in January because that would be way too easy. I want you to start today and maybe all you can save up for the holidays is about half what you thought you were going to spend, but you're going to be that much further ahead. And then if you did have to pay it off, you'll pay it off in half the time. And then next year you could save three quarters. You know, when you've got some bad spending habits and some bad financial situations, it takes time to work yourself out of them. And I'm not going to be unreasonable and I'm never going to have a segment where I tell you, you can't do something you really want to do. Okay, I I don't find that useful. I don't find it helpful and I really don't find it very kind. So I would much rather help you come up with a way to make it work. Vacation spending is exactly the same thing. People go on vacation and they spend too much money. And then at the end of it, they spend like the next three, four months trying to pay off the vacation they just took. You know, maybe in a perfect world, what you would do is divide your year in half and half of the year you would save the money to go on vacation with. And then the other half of the year, you would save money for holiday gifts and birthday presents. And if you did that, then both of those expenses would be paid. If your kids are always asking for items when you're on vacation, or if they're wanting to give holiday gifts, then assuming that you pay them an allowance, encourage them to save so that they have the spending money that they want for the trip. Or you give them a little spending money at the beginning of the trip, and then that's all they get. And the same thing with holiday gifts. Now, I know some people are going to disagree with this. I think it's really good to teach your children to be charitable. I think it's good to teach them that you should give gifts as well as expect to receive them. I don't mean expensive things, but with dollar stores on every single corner, it's possible to let the child go in. You know, there's coffee cups for a dollar. There's all sorts of items that can be purchased for very small amounts of money. And if that can be money that the child is either saved or has been given a small amount of money and they budget for it, it's going to teach them to be generous. It's going to show them how much fun it is to be generous. And it's going to teach them how to 
budget. So I really am a fan of using both vacations and holidays as an opportunity to give your your children a really great lesson about money. And if you follow the advice too, you'll be their best example. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. Remember, if you have a question, go to askpeggy.com, and that will also take you to my website, which is a good opportunity if you'd like to follow my social media or see what I'm up to or read my blog. You can learn just a little bit about me there as well. So today's question, which I get regularly, is very closely related to saving for gifts, our last section. And today's question is, how do I tell my children we can't afford something? And I'm always amazed at the number of parents who feel like they're not providing their children with everything that they want to provide. And what's really interesting about it is it's not socioeconomic impact related. So in other words, I have clients or people with quite a bit of money who are worried about things they can't do for their children. And I have people who are struggling a little bit financially who are also worried about what they can't do for their children. So this seems to be a universal crisis, which means that it's a really important question to address. And I want to start out by saying that I'm not advocating a freewheeling, open-ended conversation about money. Because remember that your children fundamentally don't have any control over this situation at all. And if you go into a lot of detail about being worried about paying the mortgage or paying the rent or making the car payment, it's just going to absolutely terrify your kids. And there isn't anything they can do to help. It's not common, but sometimes I hear parents talk to their children like they're friends. And and they're not. They're your kids. You know, if you're really, really worried about how you're going to pay your rent, you talk to your best friend, you talk to your spouse, you talk to your partner. Your kids can't help you with that. But it's fine to talk generally about money, and it's also really good for your kids to understand that you don't have all the money in the world because money is incredibly abstract, even to a lot of grown-ups. And so with children, the money is absolutely not a tangible thing. It's not a real thing, and they don't understand why you can't buy them a new car when they're 12. So one of the ways is to start contextualizing the money. Put the price of what your child wants into terms that they have some grasp of. So if they ever go into the store with you and they buy a soda or a bottle of milk, then explain to them how many of those little individual-sized milk bottles 
what they want costs. You know, if it's a hundred and fifty of them, that's going to help them understand what expensive means. Because if you tell somebody that it's fifty dollars or seventy-five dollars, that's not real. But if you contextualize it into a number of things that they've bought and they deal with all the time, it's going to make it easier. Also, just because they say they want something, don't rush right in that moment to go buy it. See if it comes up several times, because kids will see something a friend has, or they see something advertised on TV, and oh wow, I want that. But then a week from then, they've totally forgotten about it. And if you've rushed right out and bought it instantly, you've bought them a lot of stuff they don't even really want. When you ask them what they want for the holiday gift. See how often they come back to it. It'll give you a much better idea what it really means to them. Finally, let them know that money doesn't define happiness. I always say prosperity is much more than money. Explain to your children that your family is prosperous, even if they don't have a lot of money, because of the love that they have for each other and the way they take care of each other. That's what true prosperity is. And if you believe that, they'll believe it more easily. Have a great week. We will see you next time. In the meantime, stay prosperous. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma KVOY 104.5 FM for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.